good evening. It's great to be with you all for so many reasons, um, not least of which that long introduction that, that you get the sense that I've been doing this pro-lifing for a while. And I just want to say, those of us who are over 50 are getting a little tired, so don't come. Right? <laughs> we take our jobs. You are the pro-life gen, and we are counting on you. So, uh, as I said, I am the executive director of the National Committee for Human Life Amendment, and I'm here to talk to you tonight about our grassroots mobilization initiative, Human Life Action. I know the question and answer time is supposed to come at the end of our talk, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to launch with a question. Just a show of hands. Anybody make it to March for Life this year? Woohoo! All right. Well done, you. Okay. And anybody want to go but couldn't because, you know, your day job just, just yeah, right. A lot of us. Okay. Well, I have good news for, for you. Um, you'll still be able to be heard in Washington. We'll get to that in a minute. But those of you who were in... D.C. for the march. I'm going to ask you why you marched. I think I know why you marched. Where did you march? From where to where? Dustin. Um, march from the start up to the Constitution makes the hill, and then scatters so we get caught in the crowds. <laughs> okay. So the point is, you walked what happened? toward the hill. Yes. You all went up the hill, right? Why? Why did we march toward the hill? To the Supreme Court. To the Supreme Court, and what else? Set of buildings. Right. So that, uh, when I was a kid, everybody walked from the ellipse all the way up to the hill. And I don't know how much of this still happens, but the point of the March for Life on that day, which commemorates the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, is for us to then, in massive numbers, go into the halls of Congress and meet with our legislators. Why? Because we want them to know that what? That you're concerned about the issue before they take action. That we want them to take action. Know that we understand that Roe versus Wade in its companion case, Doe versus Bolton, uh, broke our Constitution, and that it, you know, it cannot stand legally, and that it cannot stand morally. And so, back in 1974, right about a, not quite a year after the Roe decision came down, the U.S. bishops created the National Committee for a Human Life Amendment. The goal was to try to fix a crack in the Constitution with a constitutional amendment in the same way that constitutional amendment fixed the Dred Scott decision back in the day, right? So they understood that this was an important effort and for many years worked tirelessly to secure the complete legal protection of every human life under the law. And of course, the most complete protection would be through a constitutional amendment, right? Well, that effort continued until the 90s, um, and then the political and, frankly, um, jurisprudential climate, the Supreme Court, made it, shall we say, imprudent to continue that strategy, to continue to work for a human life amendment, because the posture of the law at the time of connection was made things worse. But the bishops, in their wisdom, said, you know, we're, we're not giving up on our goal. We may change our strategy, okay? Uh, but we're not giving up on that goal of a total protection under the law for every life. But instead, they began to work for incremental legislation, okay, for laws that protect as many women and children as possible. And um, they did this through many ways. And one of the ways they did it was through the work of NCHLA. Now, I would say there are probably not too many of us in this room who remember, as I do, being at church on a Sunday, and we, uh, there was an announcement at the end, and the ushers come down the aisles with sheets of postcards. Anybody ever participate in a postcard campaign in church? What's a postcard? What's a postcard? <laughs> okay. So, so, back in the day, postcards were an you know, important way to communicate with other so they, they would have a sheet of postcards with perforations. You can look that up on Mr. Google. Um, paper would be perforated. And um, they would have two postcards, one for each senator, one for your member of the House, and then one card to come back to our office. And there have been many moments when the entire church in this country have, has moved as one, raised our voices. And I'll, I'll give you an example. The partial birth abortion ban is, is law. We were told by 
say, they said, we'll never get past. And we said, yeah, well, we're the church. We're about protecting life. We're in this for eternity, so we don't care how long it takes. And it took, I don't know, umpteen tries and a few administrations. And they kept at it, right? And finally, it was passed. And part of the reason the partial birth abortion ban passed is that Catholics raised their voices as one and sent postcards to Capitol Hill in record numbers. And if I was doing my little PowerPoint, I would show you a picture of a fax. I know what fax is. Congressman in Florida saying, you know, we received on the Hill nearly 3 million, it was like 2.68 million postcards all at once. I had pictures of, of housewives carrying boxes of postcards up the steps of the Capitol. Perhaps it's a character flaw on my part, but there's something really appealing about the image of Hill staffers having to climb over boxes to get to their desks. And Hill staffers <laughs> Our voices were heard. That that was passing. Now I'm talking about you know, ancient history and postcards and all of that. Why? To let you know that we have a long tradition and some really good successes in our history. We need to keep moving forward. So um, I like to say, you know, before there was the internet, there was NCHLA. And um, before there was postcard, before there was email, there were postcard campaigns. Since our founding in 1974 by the bishops, we have worked to mobilize the grassroots by creating legislative networks. And it's really um, very simple how it's done. You know, it's a big church and a big country, right? But every uh, thing breaks down into local groups. So every diocese has a bishop, and each bishop typically has at least one person on his staff who's responsible for the pro-life issues, That's the director of pro-life activities. That person then has a contact, usually a volunteer, in every single parish. Someone like my mom, the whole time I was growing up, she was the parish pro-life committee chairwoman with her friend Mrs. Soa. They would go back and forth, so who's turned to us in charge. And uh, they would have activities at the parish level, right? So if there was, and they would do all sorts of things, not just legislative initiatives, but, you know, diaper drives and um, outreach to moms in crisis, education to the tables, at the parish picnic, all of that. But when there is, um, you know, something of import going on in the hill, a bad law we want to block or a good law we want to get through, uh, that system has always worked uh, very well. Now, we still work through that diocesan system, but now, through the magic of the internet, we can also go directly to the grassroots and to let the people of God know that we're here, and we are still urging people to contact Congress. Our default mode now is not postcards, but the internet, and, um, and I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit about how human life action makes it really easy for you to engage. But before we do that, I kind of want to pull back to the 30,000-foot view for just a moment and see if we can't talk a little bit about what it means to engage. Because um, well, this is theology on tap, after all, right? And so um, we really should at least quote one quote. <laughs> no, but... Um, Actually, the church has taught very consistently for a long time about the importance of the Christian raising his and her voice in the public square. Pope John Paul the Great called it an act of charity because it serves the common good. And that kind of took me back because I thought, you know, for a long time I've been in the pro-life, you know, effort and when I'm collecting diapers for the needy mom or I'm you know, having a bake sale in college to raise money for crisis pregnancy center. I, I can see when I'm sidewalk counseling and I'm engaging with that woman, I can see how I contribute to the, to the common good, how that's an act of charity. But politics? I don't know, not so much. It didn't, didn't strike me that way. But, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, because the law is normative, right? The law shapes our culture. So a lot of people without a whole lot of reflection, we'll think, well, it's legal, therefore it must be moral, right? Um, and we know that that's not always the case. And um, so the, the Pope's have spoken very consistently about that, and Pope Francis is no exception. He says, um, none of us can say, I have nothing to do with this. They govern. 
No, no, I am responsible for their governance. And I have to do the best so that they govern well, and I have to do my best according to my ability to participate in politics. Politics, according to the church, Pope Francis said, according to the social doctrine of the church, is one of the highest forms of charity because it serves the common good. He says, I cannot wash my hands, eh? <laughs> we all have to give something. So, um, the good news is, I'm going to tell you in a little while, that I have something everybody can do that will be within your ability if you can, if you can use your thumbs, if you can click. So, you know, but... Um, been told by my young friends that millennials don't always really like politics. Politics is kind of, there's a big it factor, and, and I do see that. Um, but a, a wise gentleman I know recently said to me, you know, politics is probably the wrong word, because politics is something politicians do, but what we're talking about is public policy, and these eyes on public policy, and that we need to be vigilant about all the time. And uh, I think the, the Pope, when he speaks about it, he uses the word politics, but we can do anything in terms of policy. Here's another really good quote, where Pope Francis was meeting with a group of Italian uh, pilgrims who were activists in their communities, and one of them was, was kind of concerned, and kind of brought up this it factor, and, and asked him, you know, is this, is this okay that we're engaging in this way? And Pope had this to say, but can a Catholic engage in politics? She must. But can a Catholic make a difference in politics? He must. And then he quotes his predecessor, Pope Paul VI. He said, if I'm not mistaken, said politics is one of the highest forms of charity because it seeks the common good. Same thing that John Paul Lorenz said. This is what kind of rocked my world. He said, politics is a kind of martyrdom. It's a daily martyrdom. Seeking the common good without letting yourself be corrupted. One can become a saint through politics. That's kind of interesting. So we, here we have, I don't know, I think about politics in general. You know, the first thing that popped into my head is not path to sanctity. <laughs> right? But that's what the Pope is saying. There's, there's, a, there's a martyrdom there. Uh, whenever you're serving the common good and, and you're dying to yourself. So, um, so it's important to, to have this context to our engagement. It's also important to know that our own bishops have taught consistently and for a long time uh, about the importance of the Christian call to political responsibility. Now, I'll have to tell you that when I was younger, you know, I had friends at Georgetown who were all about politics, and they were getting internships on the Hill, and, you know, I, that was just so not my thing. I was a French major, and, you know, just, I, I was glad for them they were interested in that. I didn't read that part of the paper. You know, I, I was more like the cooking section or style. Uh, now, now there's no such thing as a newspaper. It's online. But back in the day, I don't know. I think that times have changed, my friends. And I think that the last eight years have taught me something. And that is that if we do not push back when our rights are threatened, we will not be able to exercise our ministries. You, you won't be able to sidewalk counsel if you don't pay attention, because it'll be hate speech, right? So we have to be eyes on, and we have to be vigilant. And we have to be engaged. Um, and the uh, bishops of the United States have said that responsible citizenship is a virtue, okay? But this is what they also say, that participation in the political process is a moral obligation. All believers are called to faithful citizenship to become informed, active, and responsible participants in the political process. It's kind of a heavy charge, right? So we have this, this important activity that, frankly, there are a lot of us who are like me who, I mean, some people get up in the morning, they can't wait to read roll call. You know, and then the rest of us would rather have, I don't know, dental surgery without anesthesia. Right? Especially after the last election. It's like, oh, please, not the P word. But this is not optional, okay? This is, um, this is important. And something else that drove this teaching home for me was a report that was um, in the Washington Post last summer about a Pew Research uh, poll saying that uh, once upon a time, Catholics were the largest uh, voting demographic at 22% of the, 
of the vote. Um, that is no longer the case. Now, the larging, largest voting block are nuns. Now you're thinking, has she had one point too many? Because all the nuns I know are Catholic. No. Not nuns, N-U-N-S. Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, are the largest voting block. So those who, when asked, what's your religious affiliation? Check. None. Okay? So, so this is my question to you. If we do not proclaim the gospel of life to the legislative process, who's going to do it? Okay. We don't engage. There will be a there will be a big a big hole. So, um, so that's the thirty thousand foot view. I really um, would love to get into the weeds a little bit and show you, you know, a, a really great easy way to to meet this duty of political responsibility through our commercial time website. And I will. Um, I can't. You know, that's one thing. If I had a PowerPoint, I'd go live to the website and I'd give you a tour. But um, maybe at a certain point you can just all take out your phones and go to the website and, and we'll take a tour together. I, I promise not to be offended if you're on your phone while I'm talking. But let me explain to you how our organization works. And it's this. So once the U.S. bishops have pronounced their pro-life public policy goals, publicly said this to the Congress, okay, then it's our happy task at Human Life Action to turn to the faithful in the pews and say, Okay, kids, let's make some noise. Let's raise our voices. And we provide a platform for you to do it. It's very easy. All we have to do is put in our address, and uh, it, our system will pair you with your uh, elected representatives. And um, a quick click does the trick, as I like to say. So uh, meeting this duty of political responsibility is really easy. Um, go ahead and take out your phones. Is anybody on Twitter? Yes. Okay. I invite you to follow us at Human Life Action. That way, when we put out a call to action, you'll be able to get it right away. If you're on um, Instagram, we're at, wait for it, Human Life Action. And the same at Facebook. So let's stay connected. Now, you all are probably a little closer to your high school civics than I am, and I feel certain that you pay better attention. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm going to just do a, like a quick, let's just do a quick like, refresher on how a bill becomes a law. <laughs> and yes, there is a quiz. No, there isn't. No, the point of it is, I wanted to, to give you a little insight into, um, you know, when we the people can raise our voices, right? So you know that legislation is drafted somewhere. You know, sometimes on the Hill, sometimes outside groups. That's not, that's not our concern. But once the bill is introduced, then it might be time for the people to raise up and say, hey, elected representative, please pay attention to this, because there might be a lot of bills introduced, or there might be competing bills, some of which are flawed. We're only going to tell you about the bills that the bishops are behind. And I have to tell you, it is an amazing thing to watch a room full of bishops talk about you know, the subtleties of a particular bill because they reason with such um, elegance, really. Um, and I should tell you, too, that the U.S. bishops, when they speak to Congress, when they make a pronouncement on a public policy goal, they are highly respected, even if they're not agreed with. And you can imagine why that is, because so many people advocate for laws, and they everybody has an angle you know, usually financial or self-promotion or what have you, but the bishops, it's known, are, their, their motivation is the common good, and that they are coming to this decision through moral reasoning. And so they're, what they say is very well-respected. The second reason they're very well-respected is that they are known to speak for the 70 million Catholics in this country. Now, can you imagine if we had 70 million people on our alert list? Okay, what if we just had 7 million? Wouldn't that be good? And then if we could all move as one, when there was a threatening legislation that we wanted to block, or life-saving legislation that we wanted to make sure our legislators knew, um, 
be great. I think we can we can take that um, history of the three million postcards and explode that with um, contacting members electronically by phone in person because we all know we can all move quickly thanks to the magic of the internet. So that's why I do invite you to stay connected to us. So. That's a typical time when we might send out an alert, and it might say something like, please ask your member to support and co-sponsor, or work for the enactment of, is there enough co-sponsors, or, or what have you. So um, after that, it may go to committee, um, and you know, there are subcommittees, rules committees on the House side, um, but I'll just tell you a little story that, um, so it was um, maybe about 18 months ago, one of the uh, people in government relations at the USCCB, one of the policy people there, found out that a very anti-life uh, bill was going to be introduced at the Veterans Affairs Committee meeting very shortly. And um, it, it just it was not a good bill. And so we put out an action alert. But we only targeted those people whose members were on that committee. So it wasn't our whole list, but we, you know, very targeted, very specific. And uh, so those people uh, sent messages to those members, and there was such a, I think they were kind of surprised, like, whoop, getting messages on something that's going to be introduced, you know? But we were eyes on, we were, we were vigilant. Anyway, that member withdrew her uh, proposal, never, never introduced it. So sometimes, you know, that's not a, a usual sort of alert, but that is the sort of thing we can do, and I think that's kind of cool myself. Um, so I call that one that we want. Um, floor action, obviously, or, or conference committee, final passage. These are moments when we really, you know, especially if it's contentious, you know, we may really want to make some noise. And I can assure you, my friends, that the other side is very well funded and very well organized and very good at this. And we just need to step it up and make sure that the voice of the silent majority is heard. So that witness that is created every year, and that I think was created enormously this year at the March for Life. I, I think I've been going to the March for Life since I was in grade school. It's you know, a lot of marches. That has to be one of the biggest that I've ever seen. And uh, imagine that happening virtually every time. That beautiful witness happening virtually every time there was a law that needed some attention. You know, that witness is very important on that day. But we can be heard in the halls of Congress all year long. And I think now we see we really have to be. So um, so we'll send out alerts. And we're also not the sort of organization that will write you every week like, hey, you send the You know, we're just we're not the used car salesman kind of uh, mailing list. If you hear from me, it's probably an update or it's um, a, a call to action. So please open the email. It, sometimes, you know, we had one um, last week that we only had one day to get the word to our people, contact your members. Because by the time it was introduced, HR 7, and I'll tell you about that in a second, by the time it was introduced um, and we got the alert out Monday morning, they called for the vote on Tuesday afternoon. So we had just a day and a half to get people from across the country to contact their members. So sometimes we, we do move quickly on that. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's a slower burn, and that's fine too. Um, but you just never know. So uh, eyes on, it's always a good thing. So we, as I said, try to serve the legislative pro-life agenda of our bishops. And if you're wondering what those are, um, I'll just give you a quick uh, tour through the legislation that we think is uh, coming, or actually one that's already happened. The no taxpayer funding for abortion, HR 7. Anybody hear about that? Yeah. So that was a provision. Do you know what the Hyde Amendment is? Okay. The Hyde Amendment um, was um, a rider. It was passed with bipartisan support pretty much every year for 40 plus years. And it prohibited the spending of our tax dollars on abortion and anything that came out of HHS. It was, a, it was a wonderful bill that saved lives. There's a great website out there called Hello Hyde that you should check out. It shows like two million people alive because of the Hyde Amendment. But Hyde, for all its virtue, was very limited because for one thing, it, it just addressed one part of the government and then 
she suffered PTSD and many personal uh, trauma after that. Um, you know, it's one thing to be, you know, they threaten to fire you. Say, okay, I, I could lose my job with this. But it's another thing to take away your license so you can never get another job. And um, there was no, she had no ability to support. She, it, it was a bad situation. The Conscious Protection Act would correct loopholes in existing law uh, to protect people like Kathy. The other side would have you believe that it is a law to restrict access. It isn't. It's not about taking abortion away from anyone who wants it. It's not about stopping anyone who chooses to perform an abortion from doing so. It's about protecting those of us who might be in the medical profession and do not want to participate in that from being able to do that. Okay? And it also would protect um, health care providers and insurers who do not want to offer this employers who do not want to be forced, like um, a large um, evangelical church in California, where none of the employees want abortion coverage in their health care. The church doesn't believe in abortion, because they're a Bible-believing church, and they don't want to offer it, yet the laws of the state are forcing them to. So that is, you know, that, those are the sorts of issues that the Conscience Protection Act will address. Um, it did make it through the House, last year, but it didn't, uh, it won't get through the Senate. There is a possibility that it could be attached to some must-pass legislation. Again, if that stuff happens, I know y'all are busy, and you know, we don't have time to track, like, where is our Conscience Protection Act, and what happened to H.R. 7? Because I get it, right? Dental surgery without anesthesia. But if something happens, we're, we'll be watching, and we'll let you know. And you'll know because you're connected to us. And then it's a quick click, and you can raise your voice and defend life and advocate for these really important laws. So if you want to take out your phone and go to humanlifeaction.org, you won't right now see our the typical layout of our website because we're having a little fun for the march, and we redesigned our landing page just for the week. And uh, you can do a little like check-in where you're, you're coming from for the march, and a little leaderboard, like which school had most kids. Um, I don't know how it happened, but the high school where my kids go was in the lead. <laughs> just, I'm sure it's a fluke. But you can see, um, if you scroll down, you can see a take action button. Um, one thing that we have right now, we did the, uh, the alert on the 24th, before the March for Life, the 23rd, for the uh, HR7, for the Protection Act, and it did pass the House with a, with a robust majority. But one thing we've started doing recently, and we find is very important, and members of Congress have actually told me they really are glad of, is that we have started sending follow-up alerts. And so that's what's on the site right now, and I would encourage you to reach out to your member. Um, so if they voted with us, we say, Thank you. We notice what you did and we appreciate it. Because I'll tell you what, sometimes they're doing it because they know it's right. Um, but they go back to their home districts and they're pounded. And they don't hear from anybody except those who say, you are part of the problem. You are waging a war on women. So I would encourage you to do that. And similarly, if when you put in your um, demographic information, it comes up that your member voted against uh, protecting life, then we say very politely, you know, we always like to advocate with clarity and charity, um, but we say very firmly, we're disappointed. Like, we saw what you did, and we're disappointed, and we expect better in the future. And uh, especially for something like this, which is um, a policy which has long had bipartisan support, a policy that people who favor abortion rights, as they call it, support because they say, look, I understand, I don't agree with you, you think abortion is horrific and murder, I don't agree with that, but I respect that's your deeply held belief. And therefore I respect that, you know, and I agree with you that we shouldn't spend our taxpayer dollars on something this upsetting. And so a lot of people of goodwill can come together on these funding policies, even if they're not completely convinced that laws need to protect the sanctity of life. So, um, sometimes, you know, it's important to stay in touch with those members who are kind of on the on the bubble. And again, when you're doing this, you know, it's it may seem tedious, but just 
hold in mind that 30,000 foot view that we are bringing the light of Christ to the legislative process. And, um, and if we don't do it, it's not going to happen. So typically on our landing page, you'll see right in the middle of photo button with the take action. Um, click, and then we also have a blog that you can read um, if you want. Our, our, the interface on the website is designed to be really an action center, um, but do know that you can click on other tabs like legislative reports and issues, and um, it's like going into a library. We also have tracked every single key vote on abortion since 1973, and we have the data if for some reason you ever need it. I don't know, maybe you're going on Jeopardy, it's going to be a Jeopardy question, like, how did Senator Sprinter vote in 1970? No, I don't know. Um, call me if you need that data. I have it. All right. So, um, I'm not going to uh, keep talking at you because I really I want to talk with you. And so I'm going to wrap it up here so that we can have our, our Q&A. But before I do that, I just want to leave you with a little story um, about grassroots uh, mobilization and the importance of everybody doing his or her part to, as the Pope said in that first quote that I read you, to, to the best of your ability. So back in August, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, called for public comment because there's a, a moratorium on funding a particular kind of research. Research is known as chimera research because it mixes human and animal cells for experimentation. And uh, this is a very, uh, this, this is a, a bit of science that has to be navigated very carefully. When I first heard about it, I was like, oh, oh let the torches get the pitchforks. Oh, my Lord in heaven. Call the neighbors. We're marching on the NIH. And this brilliant Catholic bioethicist gave me the, she put her hand up, she's like, hold on, I get that the egg factor is huge here. She said, but some chimera research can be done in illicit way, okay? Like, she was explaining that there are ways to um, perhaps grow a human organ in a pig, give that organ cancer, test a drug on that cancer in the human organ without any, okay, it's, it sounds a little sci-fi, but she was saying, you know, some of, some of this is actually beneficial to human beings, and I know it sounds like, you know, um, something from outer space, it's, it's okay. So, but the problem with this particular move was not that they were going to do something beneficial to humanity, but that they wanted to fund research that would use the human reproductive cells and allow those to be mixed, animal and human. So the cells that make you, you. And what would result from that could possibly be a creature whose status we couldn't determine. Is it human? Is it an animal? Okay, you, it's not morally illicit to put yourself in that place. So um, there were many safeguards in place. The NIH had promised that if they ever lifted this moratorium, they would do three things. They did none of them, but in a blog post, <laughs> In a blog post in August, when all of Washington is on vacation, they called for public comments like, hey, we're going to lift more turn. Y'all okay with that? And thinking they wouldn't hear from me. And typically, um, regulations, you know, call for public comment. It could be a 90-day, a 60-day comment period. No, this was a 30-day comment period. As I said, when the whole world was, you know, packing to go to the beach and nobody's in D.C. So... Also, um, as you'll see when you get on our site, and you um, hope you're all signing up right now for Action Alerts. If I'm boring, you feel free to just click through and contact your member while you're sitting there. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the, um, the they have a, a, I think it's called comments.gov, and it's really easy. You just click and you send your message. But no, 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 no. The NIH used page three of a very complicated electronic grant application submission form with all these boxes in it, it wasn't really clear which box to put. So we couldn't preload a message into it. And then every time you put in your message, you, to submit it, you'd get a 18-number red code that you had to retype into it. I mean, it was completely ridiculous, okay? And, you know, even my teenagers were having trouble doing this. Um, so and a good number of the amazing people on our action alert list 
are older. And while they might be comfortable with email, this was, I know he ever calls about this, the phones were ringing off the hook. I was talking to grandmas in New York, in Minnesota. And, and it was this very short amount of time. And people were horrified that their tax dollars might be used for this particular kind of chimera research. This is one gentleman. Uh, actually, this is a, a, a couple in uh, Arlington. Uh, said, you know, tell me where on your website I could print it out. Because we did have a PDF of the letter, the, of the suggested language. So he said, thank you, I've got it. He printed out the letter drove up to Kinko's, copied, I don't know, 50 of them or so. Then he went to his parish where they always have First Friday Mass followed by, uh, his name is Ed, his wife's name is Dolores. So Ed copies all these. And then they go to Mass on this particular Friday morning. And um, after Mass, they always have a little social time. And Dolores always brings her Irish soda break, for which she's famous. And he came to the reception with the letters printed out with envelopes, with stamps, and oh, you don't have a pen? I have one. And he went around to everybody at Mass. He said, Have you heard about this? Have, have, have you sent your letter in yet? No. Oh, you're, you're not leaving yet. Come here. I, I, no, I have it here. And he made everybody sit down in this pastor and said, Ed, what do you do? And he explained it. He said, Give me that letter. And Bobby went upstairs and made another round of copies. And they went through. And uh, Endor stayed until everybody had filled out their letter. And then they drove from the reception directly to the main post office at Maryfield and said, I want these postmarked because they had to arrive by a date certain. Or, and I said, we will not feel obliged to count your opinion. Okay, your comments might be read, but they won't be officially counted. Well, Ed would have none of that. So he said, um, would you please postmark these for me? And the clerk behind the window said, yes, sir, that'd be no problem, thank you. He said, no, 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 I'm going to wait one minute. I want to see you postmark them. Okay, so she did. <laughs> Show me which bin you're going in. Those are going to go out today? Yes, those are going to go out today. If he could have driven the postal truck, if they'd have let him, <laughs> I think he'd have done it. Meanwhile, back at home, Dolores went to our website. Well, okay, true story. Her grandson helped her. On our website, in the Action Center, there's a drop-down menu with Take Action Sunday, and there we have all kinds of materials for use at the parish level, including a brochure that you can copy and run off back to back and make it into a trifold and put it in your parish pamphlet rack. Well, she thought that was a pretty good idea. So she, um, at her own expense, had several hundreds of them copied, then went to the parish picnic the following Sunday and stood all day. She's very outgoing, and she knows everybody because they've been there since before the church was built. <laughs> and make sure that pretty much if you went to parish picnic, you went home with a human life action brochure. And uh, she told me recently, and you know what else? I put one in every Christmas card this year. <laughs> That's what that was Now I just want to say, and I wish that you could see, I'm just going to hold this up, and maybe you can see Ed and Dolores. They are grassroots heroes. And Dolores turned 86 last Wednesday. That'll be 87 in a few months. And I just want to say that that can-do spirit, that this greatest generation got through World War II, if we could take that torch and pass it to us and to this generation, who is the pro-life generation, the culture of death doesn't have a chance. <clears throat> I think that together we will be heard. So thank you for your time and attention and for taking action. Where's the disconnect? What, in your opinion, what is going on? 
very good question, and there are probably a lot of a lot of reasons. I think one one disconnect is, is generational, and this organization, though it's in its 40s, it just recently had a makeover in the last two years and stepped out, you know, and expanded our digital footprint. So. Um, so that's a piece of it, is that we are cultural times, and although we've been around for a while, most people have not heard of human life action. But that's okay, because you guys are going to tell 200 of your closest friends, and we're each a network unto ourselves, right? And so word is spreading. We did a big youth rollout. One of the things you'll see on our, our website um, that we did for the march was um, the bishops are great, and the kids love their bishops, you know, the high school kids and, and the college kids. They, there's a great connect with their bishops. And so um, many bishops, I think we had over 30, it was kind of a last minute idea, and we did a hey, busy business people in the world, would you mind doing this for us, um, all the videos. We got like 30 to 90 second readings from the bishops to their kids, and all of them saying, remember, you know, you've got to be the channel here. So, so there's momentum building. Um, I, I take your point that there's a disconnect, and there are lots of reasons why. I, to explain all that, I have to look back, but I'm not going that way, so I have to look forward. Um, and I have right. to say that, um, you know, and I'm happy to talk to you in more depth about it, but um, I, I think that we're getting the word out, we're connecting, our, our goal is to engage and educate everyone, and the internet makes that easy. There also um, may come a time when an issue is so important that the grass tops and the grassroots will work together. So at the time of that postcard campaign with the nearly three million responses, that was a time when most every bishop in most every diocese said, hey, pastors, we're doing this, and we're doing it on this Sunday, and get your troops, because we're going to go. Because it was so big, okay? It, it may happen again that way. But it doesn't have to be so big for us to stay vigilant and for us to respond in big numbers, I think. Okay, here comes the hard question. You promised me you were the guy who was hard question. Yeah, two quick ones. One is, you talked about the pro-life generation twice. And I talked about? You mentioned the pro-life generation twice. Polling shows that most Americans support abortion up to the end of the first trimester, which is 90% of abortions happen. My first question is, do you believe we're really winning given those that data? Um, yes or no, yes or no, and why? My second question is, do you think the bishops compromise their moral, moral authority at all, given that federal qualified health centers do use of contraceptives, which are some doubles of abortifacients, and given the compromises in funding of the Hyde Amendment, whereas some abortions can be funded with federal funding through the Hyde Amendment? Okay, take your first question first. I reject your data. Okay. Uh, so there was a mayor's poll July of last year that showed um, long-term consensus that's growing, and that um, 83, if I got the number right, over 80% of Americans um, favor some restrictions on abortion. 74% of those consider themselves pro-choice. Um, I think, to your point, yes, it's easier to get that consensus um, later in pregnancy. Um, have I answered your question? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, the bishops never, the bishops never start at a place of moral compromise with legislation. Um, so there are there are pro life national pro life organizations that whether they're supporting a candidate or legislation, they say, look, you know, we're in the real world here. And we're going to have to support, say, uh, rape and incest life of the mother. Okay? The bishops never say, like, yeah, let's get a bill with rape and incest life in there. No, no, they want to support every life. Okay, but when they when they work hard behind the scenes for that, and maybe it doesn't emerge because it's it's a question of consensus. And they say, okay, this this the resulting bill is not everything we hoped for, and it's flawed, but it's still going to save some lives. I think they can, in good conscience, say, "Let's support this," understanding that we're not done yet. Okay, this is the this is the this is the struggle of incremental legislation. It is, you know, unless we're amending the constitution to protect every life, it, it's flawed legislation. I mean, they they agonized. I, I know over you know one piece of legislation that 
um, because they, they worry not they worry about the teaching moment too and, and whether you know like supporting say pain capable bill okay so then people are saying oh well, so you'll be okay with it if we anesthetize the baby and then kill it well these just don't want to be in that position of course not of course not um, but if that law were to pass and save a certain amount of lives um, and they continue to work for the perfect bill you know, I, I think the moral compromise is, is not a problem then. Because they're not settling for that. They're accepting it on the way to... Is that, is that a good question? That's a good question. You, you're right. You can sit down at your home. You don't have a chair. Over here, so I think I saw you. All right, yes. Hi. Hi, so on a Friday, I attended for the first time the auction. Uh, March for uh, for life, and one thing I did experience and notice was the fact that I mean you have to stand, of course, stand up for beliefs and, and faith in that because there are people who, who and there are I guess you know I guess I'll say the word challenge because I don't really want to say the word heckler is right, but so in facing that, what and what has inspired you to press forward because that's obviously one of the the hardest parts about being in a movement such as the pro-life movement. So what has inspired you to press forward with, I mean, not just what the beliefs you hold on to, but like the actions you take with, with regard to those beliefs? Well, uh, okay, that's a very good question. I thank you for it. It's a very complicated question, So, but I'm going to, looking at the clock, I'm going to give you a very simple answer. What inspires me is not what, it's who. Jesus Christ inspires me. Because... We are, you know, we're made in the image and likeness of God. When we're, the pro life is a big movement, but if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not going to share that source of love with a hurting world. And whether you are, the pro life movement is about changing one heart and mind at a time, right? And you do that, you, know, you can imagine how you do that when you're in a, intense conversation with your friend who's pregnant and wants you to drive her to the abortion clinic and you're talking to her, there's a, and maybe you convince her not, because you're having a personal, she's meeting you and you're meeting her there, you're having a personal connection, right? But everything we do in the pro-life movement has to reflect that personal connection with the source of love. We have to be bringing Christ to the culture. And so you cannot go forward in the pro-life movement or in your walk as a Christian in this world without that personal encounter with our Lord. So you have to, um, you know, you have to put on your spiritual armor every day and you have to nurture that relationship because if you're not in communion with him, how are you going to bring uh, other people there? This is, you know, whatever expression, whether it's legislative or direct care or whatever, it, it's about bringing that love forward. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, so I got two questions too. <laughs> they pretty back up a dozen uh, legislative uh, compromise. Uh, what type of compromises or legislative actions being uh, done to educate about contraception uh, and and you know, putting it on the front end of you know the unwanted pregnancy to, to not have it, the need to have the abortion, but then also like to, to re-educate everybody with with contraception, but also like chastity and abstinence. Right. Uh, and then also, what do we say? Uh, I've been involved in a lot of uh, conversation this week with the uh, pro-life movement and been accused of, well, you're pro-birth, you're not pro-life. How do we how do we go forward as, as pro-lifers saying, yeah, I'm pro-birth, but I'm also pro-life with what organizations can we get involved in to right. help the mother with the child? There's and also the father, too.
when I was a college student in DC, the, um, the live birth rate was much lower than the abortion rate in um, Washington, DC, and the largest quadrant of the city northwest, there was no pregnancy center at all. And so um, my girlfriend, Michelle, who was a nursing student, and I, and a couple of people, and she's like, oh, I think you start a pregnancy center. And I'm like, oh, okay. It's like, we're too stupid to know it's impossible. And frankly, that's how it happened. And <laughs> Michelle was like, go, go, go. And I was like, we always joke, like, if we were a car, she'd been the gas pedal, I was the brake. You can't do that, Michelle. There are five reasons why you can't do it. She's like, oh, we're going to do it. And, and it was like, pretty soon it was like, oh, someone donated a refrigerator, and we can keep the pregnancy gas in there. And um, yeah, so it's like, we've been meeting those needs. Even dumb college kids have been meeting those needs <laughs> since the beginning. There was a piece, everybody knows what Church Pop is. Do you ever call it Church Pop? There was a Church Pop post sometime in the last 48 hours, to your very point, and he did, um, Grantly did a great job with um, how to diffuse the pro birth thing. I would say look at the facts, but pop on Church Pop, pop on Church Pop, it's not a commercial. Um, and, and check out that post because he does it. He's like, five ways to debunk the ridiculous your pro birth. Um, I'll tell you something else, as a Catholic, I have to say, what institution serves the poor, um, houses the immigrant, educates the children, the whole package? We got that total package going on here. Um, you know, and if we prioritize sometimes, you know, like if, if my house is on fire, there are many precious things in my house, like my grandmother's china that I would like to rescue, but by God, I'm going to run and get my kids out first, right? So we can prioritize without moral compromise. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't go and do the other things as well. Um, the contraceptive question is a tough one, and I do know that uh, the church has pushed hard. Okay, since the HHS mandate in particular, there's been more eyes on, more understanding that some of us don't believe in that, and we don't want to be forced to provide that. And the Little Sisters of the Poor case, uh, you know, was a, a beautiful moment, and, and the other, many other plaintiffs in that action. So. Um, there have been efforts. There's, it's, it's hard at the federal level to, to get consensus on that, and so you go as far as you can. And then when you hit a brick wall, then you try to find a way to go over it. That's a really tough sell. But there are great organizations, which I think would, if you connect with them, you would see, like Women Speak for Themselves are rocking it on the whole question of contraception. Does everybody know about Women Speak for Themselves? Um, check out their, they have a Facebook page. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. WSFT, I think, is there. So it's it's that's like roller skating through the MTC. I'm sorry, it's a you have a lot of wonderful points there. Be happy to talk to you afterwards if you want more information. But church pop for the um, birther thing and ministry for themselves and the contraceptive questions. I'm happy to take more questions, but if you have to go, take your yeah, you Okay, so your hand down below here, sir. I am so glad you, you said that. And the question was, you know, what if you you feel that you're politically more of a Democrat but you're pro-life? How does I you know, one thing I usually always say and I didn't say tonight is that, you know, we're not a party. We're the church. And we're going to proclaim the truth to both sides of the aisle, right? Um, is there such a thing as a pro-life Democrat? There have been. In fact, uh, the, the last vote, H.R. 7, passed with bipartisan support. Um, unfortunately, there's only three Democrats. But there have been times in our history when those numbers were more even. There have been times when the Democrats were the pro-life party. Um, I, I did an analysis of all the votes on Hyde from um, day one, and it, you could just see the bar graph shift. So, um, you know, if you feel like your moral worldview lines up more with the Democrats, you know, you need to change that party from the inside out. Um, Casey's in Pennsylvania were, were an example of that. But I, I also have to say, you know, from a pragmatic point of view, it's very, very difficult to, because it's a monolithic. Um, position and it's very extreme and it rules that party. So it's it's a very high mountain to climb. But I say go do if that's what you feel called to. Yeah. 
to do this kind of service. But there are studies out there showing that um, centers that are staffed by volunteers rather than people who are paid, um, they have more customer satisfaction, better uh, quality of care, because people are there out of love, and they're, they're doing what they're doing for sacrifice and out of love. So I don't know. It's you know it's a question for uh, political theorists. I, I remember Ronald Reagan saying the most scary words in the English language are, "I'm from the government and I'm here to help you." So I don't know. I'm not saying one way or the other is better. It's just be a good debate to have with your next kind. Hey, this has been such a treat. Thank you so much.